Welcome to Block and Order, the show that explores the legal issues facing the world of Web3 and beyond. I'm Kyle Lawrence, and with me, as always, the man who has absolutely nothing else on his mind right now besides crypto, Moish Pelz. I am a blank slate, Kyle. Yes, you that's are. That's it. It's me and crypto and you, and let's go, man. That's it. I love it. That's, that's good, man. <laughs> well, time's a-wasting. Let's dive right in. Why don't you kick us off? Yeah. Uh, so GameStop has announced that they have put an end to their NFT marketplace. Remember about a year and a half ago, they had launched an NFT marketplace. I think this was a little bit after, you know, they had kind of crested off of the, the GameStop frenzy that led to the uh, stock market boom. And now the right. you know top uh, Netflix uh, streaming film you can watch from our friend Ben Mesrick. Uh, so their next escapade was launching an NFT marketplace. And uh, here we are a year and a half later, and, and they, are, they are closing sh- up shop. Um, so what do you think? Is, is there a straight line, Kyle, that we can run from GameStop blowing up, stock market going bananas, that leading into like DeFi, summer, crypto, NFTs, all kind of in the same thing. And a lot of that has stopped. I don't think GameStop's price, stock price is quite at the same spot as it used to be. I don't believe uh, it is. And, and here we go. Is this just kind of a coda to to this you know, yeah. public companies running NFT marketplaces? Well, what I, one of the things that's interesting is that it's closing tomorrow on Groundhog Day, which is just sort of an interesting endpoint for what you're what you're talking about. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of the companies come and go in and out of the NFT space. A lot of them either did it to just sort of jump on the bandwagon. It was a fad for a lot of a lot of these companies. Um, the one thing that GameStop did say on their site was that they were doing this due to the inherent regulatory uncertainty, which, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that probably paid a point. But if you look at the graph as to the activity that they had on their marketplace, I mean, in its heyday, they were doing, you know, hundreds of ETH, you know, at a clip, if you look at the reports and pretty much for the last six months, it was just a, a, a kind of a flat line on the bottom. And I just I, wish- I'm impressed they had, they had a moment at all. That's why it's like, yeah. oh, okay, well, they, they were doing, they were actually making some money for a while. Yeah. Good for them. I mean, um, but it would just warm my heart a little bit if companies were like, yeah, you know what? We stopped making money on it. So we stopped doing it. Like, just be honest. Like, come on, everybody does. Yeah, I, I think I can look. I, I think that the regulatory environment is definitely a reality and that impacts everyone. Sure. But it impacts everyone equally. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I and I think look, there's there's a, there are some NFT activity that is now coming back and you're seeing that and you're seeing uh some some mostly I think new decentralized marketplaces that are having also some success sure. in this market. And you're seeing some people that are not seeing that rebound. Uh, and and I, I'm presuming that includes <laughs> the GameStop marketplace. So, I mean, that, to me, that makes economic sense. Like, look, we had our moment. The market went away. Yeah. Now it's coming back and they don't seem to be coming back to us. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess that's true. And I suppose based on, on that fact, if regulations do come out, <laughs> no, no bets, um, maybe uh, GameStop will resurrect its NFT marketplace. I mean, look, we're, we're all, you know, we all see the writings on the wall that, you know, crypto summer is right around the corner, God willing, and, and hopefully, you know, the NFTs resurrect themselves, uh, you know, in, in terms of value, in terms of popularity, all these kinds of things. So we'll see. I don't know. It's it, it's interesting. Yeah, look, I, I think in earnestly, it's it's hard to like, yeah, we're, we're needling GameStop, but but you got to give credit like for, for companies that are actually jumping in here right. and taking these risks. And they, they have teams that had to learn this stuff and hire people. And 
It took work. Didn't work out. Good for them. Like, let's try it again in a year and a half. Sure. Yeah. Fortune favors the bold. There we go. Isn't that FTX's uh, slogan from the Super Bowl? It's definitely John Wick's. Uh, I don't know. About oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, everybody's uh, your favorite social media platform, X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, has discontinued the Do we option. we still have to say that? <laughs> You know, it's funny. I, I was wondering as I was looking at this, how long do we have to say that? Because for a long time, you know, Prince was Prince and then he was the artist formerly known as Prince. And then he died and he became Prince again, which I think just saying it out loud, it should be the other way around, not to be rude, but if he died, wouldn't he be the artist formerly known as Prince? <laughs> Sorry. He'll always be the artist formerly known as Prince. Nonsense. <laughs> so, so, so Twitter, I'll just call it Twitter. For Twitter, uh, for call, the people in the back row... <laughs> Twitter is ceasing uh, the option for premium subscribers to set NFTs as their profile pictures, a feature that had showcased the NFTs in a distinctive hexagonal shape. Initially launched in January of 22, this feature allowed subscribers to display their NFTs as profile images with detailed information about the NFT accessible uh, by clicking the profile picture. This follows uh, the trend set by Meta, which experimented with showing and posting NFTs, but announced uh, in March of last year that they were shutting down the NFT support. Moish, the question I have for you, being the IP guy in the room, does Twitter have any potential legal obligations to maintain these profile pictures for people who may have, you know, wanted to do this specifically? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I don't think so. I think yeah. the whole, you know, the way the way the service works is you. Well, one, the reality is the service works the way Elon Musk says it works, and if, if we that's don't true. like it, we can go pound sand. Right. But I think from a legal perspective. <laughs> yeah. That that's also kind of what the terms of service say, right? This is this is a software service that's provided to us pursuant to that that contract, right? The terms of service, and if we don't like it, right. our option is to stop using the service, right? Um, or to loudly complain about the service on the service. Which I think it's <laughs> kind of what we do, anyways. It's like the Spider Man um, meme, of, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I I had a well, one. I think this is like number seventeen of like Twitter's. X's Twitter's biggest problem. Um, like this is like way down the list and I'm sure they're like, do we, do we even need to uh, bother with that? I thought it was a cool idea. Yeah. Um, it never really kind of clicked, never really took off. I know um, Instagram also had a future like this. Also, I think they sunset that a while they back. Did. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it seems like it's a good idea. People that are really in the space want to flex their NFTs and want to show that, but it, most people don't yet. So it's right. like, you know, where, where they're kind of, kind of stuck in the middle. Do you think there's any weight to the complaint that I saw people bandying around saying that it was now going to be harder for people to spot fake accounts? I, I don't know if that's the case, if this didn't garner wide adoption, but I did see a lot of people complaining about that. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I, I think Twitter has a huge fake account problem. Well, of course. And, um, you know, their verified user situation is not helping things out. Um, there's a ton of bot traffic. There's a ton of, uh, I mean, this is just, I, I, not just anecdotally, I, I think that's my experience using the platform, which I do a little bit too much, but also just like reading reports about what's going on there. just just seems like they're, they've got problems with their, you know, having verified users. And I know they're sure. trying to yeah. work on that. I think there was some thought that kind of an NFT functionality here might help do that. And maybe it did. I just don't think it, it was broadly enough used to make right, a that's material the thing. difference. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe Twitter is going to launch their own NFT, uh, you know, in, inherent to the platform that you'll have to buy in order to uh, use it as your PFP. 
they do want it to be the everything app. So, you know, there you go. All right. So for our next topic, Fox and Polygon Labs have created the Verify protocol. Uh, Fox and Polygon teamed up uh, to combat concerns about deep fake technology. And together they developed a platform called Verify, which is a blockchain based solution to help verify the authenticity of content and various types of media posted on that uh, blockchain, right? So once content is registered, viewers can see the content's origin, verify the authenticity, and then third-party apps can index that and build on top of it, supporting all sorts of media types. And Fox has already implemented the tool using it to register content from Fox News and Fox Business, Fox Sports, and, and various affiliates. Sounds like Spaceballs uh, when you say it like Yeah, 80,000 people, uh, pieces of content already on there. So um, Kyle, there's been a lot of talk of what the possible over, uh, intersection of blockchain and IP and, and AI is. Uh, is. Is this a platform that you think can provide some protections for content owners? Well, I think it's an interesting idea for sure, especially with, you know, with the avalanche of, of fakes that, that we're seeing, just it seems like more and more every day. Um, you're seeing content, you're seeing things from political figures that are not real. You're seeing celebrities endorsing products that are not real. This is a, certainly a good step. They're not the first ones to try this, but this is certainly, I think, a good step in the right direction. I'll be curious to see how the news outlets implement this kind of thing because they're, you know, they have similar problems with these kinds of things. You know, Fox is not immune to it. CNN's not immune to it. We're politically agnostic, but I do think that this is an interesting, you know, way to improve upon that, you know, from the IP side, if you're the creator of something, having something verified as being authentically yours versus something that's not, I think is very important, especially with, you know, cancel culture or whatever you want to call it being what it is today. If something comes out about a celebrity that's fake and they can catch a lot of heat for it, this at least is a starting point for them to say, this has nothing to do with me, whether people believe that or not. Court of public opinion is, uh, you know, has a mind of its own, but interesting. So where do you think it goes, you know, from with your IP experience, how do you think this helps uh, creators and content, uh, you know, generators? Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's a huge issue with all this AI content and not not just deep fakes, but also deep fakes and uh, but just, you know, AI created content and how do you verify its source and who created it and whether it's authentic and whether it's newsworthy and, mm-hmm. you know, how do you do this in a decentralized way? Right. You know, how do you do this in a way that big brands that that do produce content, you know, that like, you know, that have the the, the power and the and the money to do investigative reporting and to do, you know, deep dives on these issues and have reporters all around the world, like in the field, like getting this information right. and then incentivize them to, to like, to put them, put it out there. And obviously they want that to be gated in some way right? and they want that to be paid for in some way. So um, I think blockchain has a lot of promise, right. For creating some sort of outlet to authenticate AI uh, create a content or to, you know, create, to, to authenticate human created content yeah. and create a division there. So you know what you're getting and, and the content creators can get paid ultimately for what they've created. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm here for it. <laughs> you, you do it so well. <laughs> so next up, the continuation of the Yuga Labs and Rider Rip saga, something we've covered on Block and Order a couple times before. Uh, the special master recently recommended that the court ordered the defendant, in this case, Rider Rips, to pay over $7 million in attorney in fees. These fees include 
$6.9 million in fees, $317,000 in court costs, the cost for each of Yuga Labs' three experts to travel to and sit for depositions and to review and correct their deposition transcripts, 100% of the cost of preparing this very report and recommendation. And this, of course, is on top of the $1.4 million that Yuga Labs was originally awarded on its initial trademark uh, suit. Uh, so, Moish, what's the legal basis for this? Do you know, can you walk us through how the special master arrived at, at these uh, figures and conclusions? Well, first of all, the, the, just the term special master, we <laughs> should, you know, just got to give that a little credit. It's such a great... I anoint the special master. <laughs> it, it makes me think of the uh, Master and Commander film for some reason. Oh, it's such a great movie. Greatest sound design I've ever seen. One, one, Throwing one. it out there. Sorry. So, so basically... You know, Yuga Labs asked for like $14 million in fees and Ryder Rip said you basically get should get close to $0 in fees. And the court's like, I'm not dealing with this. And they court delegated it, right, to the special master. Special master took all the information in, had a hearing with the parties and said, all right, $7 million, that's the right number. Here it is. And, and, the, and the court just adopts that, right? So, you know, I, I think people often come to us and say, well, why, why are these lawsuits so expensive? Yeah, and if you if you go here, you can actually look like line by line of what the attorneys did for a year and a half to litigate this case through trial, um, through damages, um, et cetera. And you see, you know how how they, I mean, they came up with a fourteen million dollar right uh, yeah. you know, legal bill, and they got awarded seven of that plus the one and a half in damages. So, um, yeah, I mean that that's that's how this is done. It's really that the, the time expenditure mm -hmm. of the attorneys multiplied by their billable rates. Um, a lot of these attorneys had, you know, bill rates in excess of a thousand dollars an hour, which is now typical for very large firms like this. That sure. do, um, you know, high end IP litigation work, uh, especially in like Los Angeles area, which is a you know big metro area with high rates, and uh, also gave a lot of consideration to the uh, defense tactics by Ryder Rips and his team, and kind of making it a, a long and difficult road uh, for. Uh, you got to get there. So that was also credited in the fee award. And, and that's, that's what, you know, I, I think they've said they're going to appeal this. Typically you have to post a bond for, for an appeal. Right. Um, so it'd be interesting to see like, you know, if this ends up getting paid or if the appeal overturns it in part, um, you know, there, it's, there's still kind of like, it's like, all right, well now there's eight and a half million dollars out there. Right. It doesn't mean like they're giving eight and a half million to the right. labs, but you know, it's just the next step in the process. Right, exactly. I'd be curious to see if, you know, I always was was of the of the mind that you see these huge numbers being thrown around. You would think it would serve as a disincentive for people to, you know, go after something like Yuga Labs or to act in the way that they act. It doesn't seem to have really any deleterious effect at all, though, if, if we're being honest. Well, I, th I think this, the flip side of this, I think it encourages other native Web3 companies like Yuga Labs and like other, like let's enforce our trademarks because we can yeah. do that and we can win. That's a good point. And I think it also, it encourages other kind of, not necessarily native companies, but, but companies in the, in the Web3 space, uh, but like larger brands that want to enforce their right. trademarks against crypto companies and say, well, like these rules also apply to crypto. And here's <laughs> a case where that happened and they got, you know, a $7 million fee award for doing that. So right. um, it, it kind of, it, it can, Potentially play at the incentives on both sides here. All right. So moving on to our next topic, the one inch DAO, which is a DAO for the DEX, the one inch aggregator, 
has hired an attorney to help place a structure, uh, to put a structure in place to protect its members against personal liability uh, and to potentially uh, get in front of any regulatory actions. So I thought this was a really interesting situation here because the Dow actually conducted an on-chain vote to hire legal counsel to approve a proposal for a $50,000 retainer to do this, which I think is relatively unprecedented for DAOs. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe except the Barnbridge DAO was also had like an on-chain uh, legal kind of hiring situation there. Um, but here you see a DAO proactively, not in response to like a regulatory inquiry, but proactively hiring um, a law firm to, 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 to protect themselves right. uh, and to think about kind of future-proofing them. So Kyle, uh, do you think this is a format we're going to see more of, of DAOs uh, putting out RFPs and basically asking uh you know, lawyers to come and represent the DAO. Sure. Well, the key word that you used, Moish, was proactive. And I think that's really important here. As part of our practice, when we advise clients on a day-to-day -day basis, we always try to impress upon them the idea of having a defensible argument as to what you're doing. We don't have clear-cut regulations. We aren't necessarily exactly sure what the SEC is going to do, although at this point we, we kind of are. But by doing this, by hiring lawyers who can put in place viable governance documents. You can have bylaws. You can have memorandums and, and conduct research and have an understanding of the legal ramifications of what it is you're doing vis-a-vis -vis issuing tokens or lending out money or whatever it is you might be doing. If a regulator starts sniffing around, you can say, look, we don't have regulations to look at to say this is exactly what we need to do and what we can't do. Um, but we hired lawyers. We tried to do the right thing. We looked at the existing legal framework and we implemented it into our, our day-to-day -day processes and how we conduct business. I think this is a great move. Will it necessarily, you know, bear fruit? I, I mean, it, I, I realize we're tipping our cap to somebody who has essentially a startup hiring lawyers to help them navigate the waters, which is what everybody should be doing. But I like the idea. I like that everybody was on board with it. I think it's a well thought out uh, and positive expenditure of cash. And I don't just say that to be self-serving because they hired lawyers, but I really like this. Um, so I, I'm hoping to see more DAOs do this. Um, wh what kind of specific things do you think they can do in addition to corporate governance? Do you think they can help the, the personal founders with their liability? You mentioned Barnbridge before, which I think was something similar to that. I, it's just, that's where it can get a little know. murky. I th I think, yeah, I think the, yeah, I think the idea here is they just, they, they're, they're coming in to help advise the DAO and give yeah. them like defend, like make sure that individual people are not liable. Not necessarily the, the, the founders are like, you know, it depends on how the DAO is structured and who's kind of involved day to day, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I guess the flip side of this, right, is we're, we're a decentralized entity. We, we shouldn't have to do this stuff. We should structure our way. So we're like uh, impervious to regulatory attack. Right. And if they want to come after us, there's a billion of us and they're never going to find, you know, so, so what do you, I, I mean, I, part of it, I can see the counter argument there of like, no, the whole point of a DAO is to not have attorneys and to do it this way and to, and, and I, and I, I get it, but I, I just think that's, that's the reality of, of, yeah. the, of the regulatory environment, not just in the U S but globally, it just seems, well, uh, it, it's a lot. It's a lot of the proponents of of cryptocurrency in general. Or we don't need regulation. We're decentralized. We can govern ourselves. To which I always say, I go to the grocery store and people can't put the grocery carts away in the stanchions. So 
I think that's a spurious argument, a specious argument, uh, if I may say so. For our last topic today, on Wednesday, January 31st, families of the victims of the Hamas attacks in Israel from October 7th filed a federal, uh, a federal lawsuit in the Southern District of New York against Binance, against its founder, CZ, and also against the states of Iran and Syria. And they, in the lawsuit, they accused Binance uh, the exchange of facilitating the financing of Hamas, which is listed as a terror group by the U.S., United Kingdom, and other jurisdictions, and other terrorist organizations between 2017 and 2023, providing, quote, a clandestine financing tool that Binance deliberately hid from U.S. regulators, end quote. Um, that, that's an interesting one that I think we'll circle back on. Um, and of course, as everybody remembers, back in October, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Palestinian Islamic Jihad had received over $93 million in cryptocurrency between August of 2021 and June 2023, while Hamas had received about $41 million. And then those reports were subsequently debunked. Uh, the figures were probably overstated, uh, according to Chainalysis. And we all know what happened on Capitol Hill and all of the ensuing fallout from those reports. You know, Moish, obviously this is a very hot button topic, but do you think that Binance, putting aside all of the, you know, the other considerations here, do you think Binance is worthy of scrutiny, scrutiny in this particular instance? Again, it's a really thorny issue, right? And you certainly sympathize uh, with, with, the, with the victims here. But does that mean, right, that uh, Binance as an intermediary allegedly, um, even if they did facilitate some routing of funds to terrorist financing, does that mean they have legal liability to essentially victims of the, the terrorism that was financed by the money that went through their platform? Um, you know, there's just, there, there's a, there's a lot, a lot of steps that happen on that path. Yeah. You know, we, we call it proximate causation as to, you know, whether they were really in the, in the chain of, of events that caused the, the terrorism. Right. Um, so I, I think it's, it seems a little attenuated to, to say uh, that, that they're uh, at fault here. But, you know, it, it comes back to like this analogy, which, you know, you, you think about some of these victims of in the U.S. of like school shootings and they're suing the gun manufacturers. Right. Um, and, and I think you could probably use the same argument there. Well, you know, we're, we're selling a weapon, but we don't know how it's going to be used. And we, we assume it's going to be used responsibly uh, by, by people kind of acting in good faith. And it, it's, you know, there's, there's some bad apples here. Right. Um, but I think it's turned out at least in some of those, those um, that's a product liability versus right. like a terrorist financing is so yeah. different, but it turns out that there is actually um, in some instances liability there. So for sure, you know, it's a it's a it's a new setting, and I think we're going to have to see how these get tested by the courts. Yeah, one of the interesting things, you know, you talk about gun manufacturers, and we were talking about that before recording. I think it comes down to you know what is the intent, what do they know about these things? You know, when you're a cigarette company and you're purposefully withholding information about the harm that your product causes, that's a little more clear. Here, the plaintiffs are specifically alleging that Binance deliberately hid this as a clandestine financing tool, and I, and I, I would have to think that they're claims largely hinge upon Binance purposefully doing that. You know, if Binance says, how could we possibly, you know, know what's going on? We have, you know, hundreds of millions of people use our platform. What are we talking about here? It's, it's, it's very tricky, very, really interesting yeah, to see how this one how's it you, come to you that. Look, you look back to the DOJ action against Binance and you look at some of the internal texts. That's true. That they published as That's part true. of that. It's like, oh, 
damn, like yeah. they should not be putting that, not be texting each other uh, these these things. And so, you know, who knows what they were saying and what they right. what they knew at the time True. Um, about this. I will say though, right? There was a lot of uh, uh, kerfuffle in in Capitol Hill, especially about these reportings that there was like ninety million dollars and. And it, it, you know, I think all the all the reporting that came out after that, especially from chain analysis, was like this number is completely made up and completely right. misattributing yeah. all all of the source of this funds, and you're you're like, you're, it's it's really a, a fraction of the number being reported. So I think I think it gets back to also a question of like, was there actually ever a significant amount of money that flowed through crypto right into the hands of terrorists? You know. Before you even get to, well, did that actually then cause harm to some people, right? Yeah. So um, there's there's some, I think, initial questions we still have to ask before For we get sure. There. Yeah, we're definitely going to keep an eye on this one and we'll follow up on uh, in future episodes as more information comes out. Well, Kyle, it's great to see you. Uh, oh. I, I would ask, great to see all of our listeners out there. Uh, we would really love any feedback. Uh, if you have any suggestions for uh, topics that we can cover, for issues we haven't covered, or issues that we have covered where something's happened and you want us to backtrack, uh, you know, we're here to serve. Please let us know. Let's make this interactive. Please like, subscribe, share with your friends, uh, and we'll do it again soon, two weeks. Yep, sounds good. And nice to see you too, Moish. That was very sweet. Thank you very oh, thank much. You. Um, special shout out to OG producer Abby. Without her, this show would not be possible tonight. Uh, remember that nothing that you hear on our show is meant to be construed as financial or legal advice. Please consult your own attorney and representatives if you're going to take the plunge down the rabbit hole. For Block and Order, I'm Kyle Lawrence. And I'm Moish Peltz. Have a good day. See you, everybody.